Heavenly Father, use the words that I speak for your glory. Amen. Almost 11 years ago now, I chaperoned a pilgrimage of high school youth on their journey to the Holy Land. Most had never traveled anywhere, so the jet lag we experienced nearly knocked some of us over with fatigue. To our benefit, although I'd say we didn't see this at the time, to our benefit, our leader decided that on the first day there, we would go north to climb Mount Tabor, the Mount of the Transfiguration. Most travelers go up that mountain in small minivans, but not us. Oh no, we were going to climb. And so climb we did, up and up, climbing and climbing and climbing. Are we there yet? One of the students asked about a half hour into the hike. I replied, oh yeah, yeah, we're almost there. Another half an hour went by and another student asked, are we there yet? To which I said, yeah, yeah, we're almost there. And a chorus of teenagers yelled back at me, you said that the last time. It was hot. It was a hot and humid day, and we really couldn't see how much further we were going. And personally, I, I started having my doubts. I wondered if we were ever going to be there. I, I had major doubts. I was tired. But we kept going, and an hour later we finally arrived at the top, exhausted. But oh, what a view. It was amazing. Our first day in the Holy Land, and we had this incredibly strenuous and dramatic and exhilarating experience. What a perfect place for Jesus' disciples finally to be let in on what they had been perceiving about Jesus for several years. Remember how we've talked about how in this season of Epiphany, all our readings are all about Jesus being revealed to the world. Often we've, we've been called to observe these revelations through Jesus' teaching or through his miracles or through his presence with a certain group of people. All of these things have been perfectly well and good, except oftentimes, if we notice... Most of Jesus' disciples just don't get it. They like being around Jesus, but they refuse to go anywhere else with the idea of who he is. They often just don't get it. So we see a major turn of events today. Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. At 8 o'clock when I said that, I was standing down there and the sun came in through that window and flooded the room. It was totally surreal. But anyway, the, his face shone like the sun and the actual voice of God speaks to them in the thick of the cloud and then Jesus reappears to them and says, hey, don't be afraid. But everything is now changed. How could they not be afraid? What did this, this event, this transfiguration even mean? Everything is changed in how the disciples see Jesus. But let's be honest. Are the disciples themselves changed? I don't know. 
These sacred events in the life of faith often make us think we have to figure this all out. That somehow this profound spiritual mystery has to be fully explained for it to mean anything at all. We see Peter, James, and John essentially freaking out at this supernatural event, and they're, they're trying to create meaning in all sorts of inane ways, and so sometimes we think we have to as well. The, the writer Barbara Brown Taylor says that we often gravitate to needing to unpack these stories like unpacking a suitcase, that we need to take all of the parts and somehow find meaning in each, and then put them in their place, like putting them in a drawer or hanging them up in the closet. So as she continues in this line of thinking, Moses stands for the law given to the people, Elijah for the great prophets, and Jesus as Messiah, the anointed one who blends all the traditions of the law and the prophets, and Peter needs to learn to keep his mouth shut. In her words, discern the content of the story and you don't have to go rummaging around inside of it each time it comes up. Instead, you can just pull meaning out of it and place it neatly folded in a drawer where you can find it the next time you need it. If I'm totally honest, I think this is what most of us do with a lot of stuff in the Bible. We just fold it up and put it away. It stays somewhere externally, like clothes on the shelf, instead of being grafted into our hearts, like a, an intense experience of emotion like love or sorrow or joy. We pack up these Bible stories and put them away just as easily as we put our credit cards into our wallet after we pay for something. The experience of the disciples and of Jesus doesn't live with us. It just gets put somewhere for safekeeping until we hear this story again on the last Sunday of Epiphany next year. That does no one any good at all. That approach makes the Bible transactional. It sucks the life out of the sacred text. We want to ask, are we there yet? Like the high school kids wanted to know if they had arrived. We want to see the power of God coming into the world, but we want it to be a one-time event. Something that can get conveniently then put away on the shelf, but that's not how these stories work. They're not supposed to. They're meant to give us life. The point of this story is to invite us to open a window of experiencing a reality, some kind of reality that's much greater than ourselves, to experience of a reality of Jesus literally, that, of a reality of Jesus that, that renews or is renewing inside of us each and every day when we awake and when we go to sleep at night to see this continuous power of God being manifest in our very presence. Yes, this story invites the reader to start synthesizing all of those stories about Jesus and those experiences and those miracles of Jesus, but the sheer framework of this story 
Jesus being transfigured and interacting with ancient religious heroes of the past, the framework wants us to see a timelessness in this joy and then in this journey that never ends. Transfiguration tells us by default that no, we are not there yet. It's time to go deeper, to climb higher, to imagine a reality that is greater than the one that we are in, one that is much more expansive and that draws on all of the wisdom of the past to build us up for a brighter future. Today at Trinity, we draw greatly on the heritage of our past today. And we celebrate a bright future too, as we commemorate this rededication of the cathedral organ. There's a story that goes along with this that I've got to point out. And I've got to point out a story of how today's choral anthem that you're going to hear in a few minutes by the choir, by Herbert Howells, is really a story of transfiguration and transformation. The composer, Herbert Howells, was born in the late 19th century in England, and he became known as an accomplished organist and composer and teacher. He taught at the Royal College of Music, and he taught all the way up to 1979. At this time, he was age 87, and he was still teaching. But what students noticed about him was his energy, his passion for living, even though he sometimes came off very traditional. He had this passion for living. And one student wrote that even during London's cultural revolution in the late 60s and early 70s, filled with hippies and flower power and social upheaval, Howells always created spaces in his classroom that were artistic and pleasing and comfortable, slightly cluttered, but in no way forbidding. His students admired his energy so much as he was often known for taking those double-decker buses around London. And if I think it's different now, but I remember going to London even about 15 years ago, and the bus drivers would always leave the doors open on those buses. And so apparently Herbert Howells was known for getting to a bus stop and jumping off the bus before the bus had completely stopped, even at the age of 80. His students remember this. He had this energy and this zest for life and living. But the flip side of this, the flip side is that there are stories of Herbert Howells where he really almost didn't make it in life. When he was 23, he was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and given six months to live. It was around the time of World War I, so it got him out of the war but he thought he was going to die. And so he opted for this very experimental radiation treatment at the time, which was not tested on anyone, and it actually worked, and he was cured. But that wasn't his greatest tragedy or challenge in his life. His greatest tragedy happened when he was 43 years old. When he was 43, his nine-year-old son, Michael, died from polio. This death plunged Herbert Howells into a terrible depression. The world in which he generally viewed with bright optimism quickly became dark. He couldn't function. His normal reality of living ceased. 
He couldn't see his life clearly. There was no joy. There was no mountain left to climb. There was no place to look up. No journey to venture onwards. There was no light to gravitate towards. It was so bad, many of his colleagues were were terribly afraid of what was going to happen to him. His daughter was the one that helped. And she urged him strongly to start composing, to channel his grief into music. And he didn't honestly know if he could. But what we do know about Herbert Howells is that he eventually did find a way to step into the light despite the darkness of his depression. In fact, his entire vocational life was greatly transformed, some might say transfigured, by this tragedy. The organist Bruce Neswick writes that Howell's entire shift in composition takes place after the death of his son, that he becomes much more interested in exclusively writing sacred choral music, and some of his greatest choral works emerge after his son's death. Perhaps this might be because he needed other human voices to kind of echo back to him the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings that he was feeling. And the way he did this was through writing sacred choral music. He saw a new light in his vocation. He finds this new journey of living that it offers music and singing and reflection for practically the entire English-speaking world, even though we knew he took time every single year of his life to commemorate the death of his beloved son, Michael. The work that we're going to hear today, the Te Deum, was written in 1952 for St. George's Windsor. And according to a commentary by Bruce Neswick, the beauty of this piece seeks to offer the highest praise to God in the traditional morning canticle of the Te Deum, the We Praise Thee, O God, with beautiful art-shaped phrases, flamboyant organ parts, unison singing by the choir that erupts into blazing harmonies. What a testimony in music to such a sign of personal transformation and Christ's transfiguration among us, taking the most basic elements of our lives, our intellect, our hearts, our emotions, our deepest prayers, our experiences, our, our, our experiences with one another, and letting the power of God take what we have, whether happy, sad, or confused, and create something far more glorious, far more meaningful, far more beautiful than we can ever imagine, just because we are willing to live into this journey. That we are willing, that we are willing to keep walking up the mountain with Jesus. Just because we know that God's revelation in our lives can't conveniently be shoved into a drawer or hung up in the closet. Our experience of God must be lived out in the good times and in the bad times as well. We know by the transfiguration story that just like Jesus, we are never, ever alone in our lives. A God who calls Jesus and who calls us beloved, 
accompanies us not only in the dark places of despair, but also in those bright places of glorious triumph. No one's life is promised to be easy. No one's. But the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us will never abandon us. The transfiguration of Jesus and the transformation of us is completely possible and totally real. Our task isn't to explain it. Our task is to live it. Are we there yet? No way. You might have your doubts and you might have your fears, but our journey begins again today. So climb onward. Keep going upward. The light gets brighter. The love gets stronger. Our souls are starting to burn with God's holy fire. We're almost there. Keep going. We're not there yet, but we are promised that God's glory awaits, and we are absolutely never alone.